there are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned in this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and pleasure to have you with us. And I don't believe it's too late to wish everyone a happy new year. Today might be the last day, so we'll stop there. Today's guest is Natasha Owens. Natasha exploded on the Christian music scene in 2016 and quickly found herself touring with Christian music's most iconic artists, including Michael W. Smith and Jason Crabb. Her sophomore album, We Will Rise, was named Inspirational Album of the Year at the 2018 We Love Christian Music Awards. Her fifth studio album, American Patriot, Natasha Owens is taking a new direction and offering up a bold, proud, powerful concept collection that bridges an unwavering love of country with the themes of faith and family that have always played a significant part in her artistry. Natasha Owens, Happy New Year and welcome to Next Steps Forward. Happy New Year. I'm excited to be here today. Thank you for asking me. No, we appreciate your time. I know how busy you are, so it's a real thrill and honor to have you here. So, Natasha, you grew up in Texas. Faith and family were cornerstones of your young life. I know that a lot of Christian singers get their start very early in life, typically singing in church. Was that how you got your start? No, not at all. My uh, grandparents pastored in Arkansas, and of course, I would get thrown up on the stage every time I came to sing a song, very last minute, and I believe that is what caused me to have severe anxiety, so I did not want, I didn't want any part of that stage once I grew up. So you talk about the anxiety. You decided early on that you didn't want to be on stage. Where did life yeah. take you over the next few decades? You know, I found my husband, married him back in 1995, and had two awesome boys who are now 23 and almost 21. And so we just got, a, got in my career, became a mom, uh, family, and I did not expect for my life to take a sudden turn and that now lead me into music. So you talk about that sudden turn. Your life took that drastic and terrible turn two weeks before your 34th birthday. Your father yeah. died on May 6, 2010. What was it like for your family in the earliest days and months after his passing? You know, we were in such shock. He was 58 years old. He was sitting at a table cleaning his guns. Um, and he was the epitome of gun safety, but he missed a step and a bullet came out and hit him in the heart. And he was gone within 30 seconds. So I lived with shock for several months. I was the strong one in the family, the oldest child that just stood up and helped to carry my mother, my sister, my boys. Uh, and I tried to be too strong, I think. And that, that ended up being to my detriment, but I didn't give it to God. And I just tried to stay busy. And um, so we, had, we went from shock to uh, dealing with reality uh, within moments of that shock wearing off. And that was really tough for me. So if it's not too difficult, tell us a bit about your dad. What are some cherished memories you have of him and the positive impact he had on you and others? He was so amazing. Uh, he retired right before he passed away, and he was the uh, third in command of Bristol-Myers Squibb. So he ran a massive company. Uh, he had such a presence about him when he walked into a room. Um, 
he was the smartest person in the room, of course, but people gravitated to him because of his personality. He had this unbelievable dynamic about him that made everyone feel comfortable and everyone feel loved. And um, he came from a broken home growing up. And so it was so important to him um, to give us such quality time. He traveled a lot, but when he was home, he was home. And um, he had such wisdom. I miss that wisdom. Growing up, he would tell me, you know, Tosh, it doesn't, you can't control what people say or think. You can only control how you react to it. And that is something that I have lived by and taught my boys. So his memory and his ways of the way he did things live on in my family. And those words of wisdom he gave you clearly played a big part throughout your career, which we're gonna to get to later in the show, but it's very ironic, I'll say. So Natasha, as you slipped into depression and you, you were terribly angry, were you angry at the loss of your dad, angry that you're put in the position of holding the family together or was it something else? It was all of the above. I was so angry at God. You know, I, I stayed strong until the year mark. And once that one year anniversary hit, I down spiraled into a deep depression because of things that I spoke. The scripture says we have the power of life and death in our tongue and it's so it's so pertinent in every situation because what we what we um, say begins to be, we begin to believe it. It plants that seed of negativity, and so I questioned why. And when I did not get that answer to that question, I downspiraled. I was so angry at God. I um, I questioned. I was mad at my dad for making a mistake. I was mad at others around me that didn't stand up and help pour into me when I needed it. I was mad at the church for not um, slowing down enough to really, uh, you know, I would walk into the church on the year mark and people would say, what's wrong with you? And I'd say, I'm still dealing with grief. You, you still are. It's, it's been a year, like get over it. And they were so, some, some people were so heartless about it that um, I started to, to believe that no one cared. Right. And so I put on this brave face and, um, a smile that was just completely hollow. I was dead in my eyes inside. And so, um, so I dealt with all the aspects of, of grief, um, but I got stuck in that anger stage. You know, so you mentioned your faith. You just mentioned that you were angry at God. Did you ever begin to question God? You know, was your faith I, tested this time? Yeah, I absolutely questioned God. I wanted to know why such an amazing man had to go. I wanted to know why he didn't intervene and save him. Um, I blame myself. I was supposed to have lunch with him that day. And this happened at one o'clock. I got stuck at work and um, could not get out to have lunch with him. And I, if, if I had been, coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know, would he still be alive? Um, but we don't have the answers to those questions. Nine times out of 10, we won't get the answer of why. We have to learn. Um, the two things I've learned through this trial is we have to ask, what do I need to learn and who do I need to help? But when you're in the midst of survival, you're not thinking about that, right? You're just trying to breathe in and out every day. And so um, I question if there ever was a God. I went that far. And during your depression, did you ever have thoughts about suicide? Uh, yeah, uh, towards the, towards the um, I guess, end of that depression road, I went so deep so fast within that first six months that um, I had... I hadn't had the thoughts of actually, what do I do to commit suicide? But I did, it was heading that way because I had had the thoughts of, um, I had already convinced myself that the world would be a better place without me and that uh, my family would be better off without me. I was a burden. Um, I couldn't quite uh, 
slip out of the depression fog and I knew that that was affecting my entire family. So when people say that when people commit suicide, it's the most selfish thing they could do. Yes and no. In my mind, I thought it was the most uh, giving thing I could do for my family. And so um, I was already coming to that place when God crossed my path at the perfect timing. And how long did you have those thoughts for? Uh, a good month. Um, and they were increasing. Um, it was went to where I, in, in the beginning, it was just a thought that crossed my mind. And I began to obsess about it. I began to, uh, everything that I, towards the end of that month, everything that I looked at, I, I didn't see the beauty in anything. And I, and I thought that um, the beauty would come back if I was gone. So it, it was probably a good month of really waging war between my two ears. And as you look back at that time now, are you shocked that you had those thoughts? I am because life is so beautiful and the enemy, the devil comes in and convinces of us of all kinds of things. And when we start obsessing about certain thoughts, it, be, it we begin looking through a pair of rose colored glasses and it's not the true reality. It's not. Uh, God is always there with a lifeline, but it has to be our choice. God gives us the power of choice. And so I am so, so, so thankful that um, God crossed my path when he did. I can honestly say, I, I do believe I would not be alive today if it wasn't for him. And it was during this veil in your life that your church pastor asked you to be the music minister. What were the circumstances of your pastor thinking you were right for that role? Well, I don't think he necessarily thought I was right for the role. I was not, but it was something that God put on his heart. He called me one day and he said, I need you to be our music minister. You've always been behind the scenes. I've always been a part of music. I just didn't want to be the soloist. I was over the praise singers, but I really didn't want to step out five feet in front of the praise singers to, to be the music leader. And so keep in mind, I struggle with severe anxiety. So I was a person, a candidate for this job that um, couldn't open my Bible at that point. Um, I couldn't pray. I was completely numb inside and I was depressed. I couldn't get out of bed every day. If I had something to give, it wasn't to the people of the church. It was, it would have been to my family. And I was very um, hard spoken about that to him. And so he just said, think about it. And he kept calling me and he, he called on a day that um, I was really in the trenches of this. The world would be a better place without me. And he said, I don't want you to say anything. I just want you to listen. And he began speaking to me and God gave him the words because he began describing exactly how I felt, exactly the world that I was living in at that, at that time and up to my feelings. And so I struggled with severe anxiety, right? Somebody that can't pray or open up their Bible, that's not a candidate for this stage. But he, And I asked him that and he said, God wants you for this position. He's sending you a lifeline. I feel like this is your last lifeline and you better take it. And so I did. I said yes before even thinking about it. And then I thought, my God, the overwhelming thoughts of a job that I have to do that I can't get out of bed and get dressed every day. How am I supposed to do this job? Tell us about your church. Was or is it a large one? And how demanding would the music director role be? Oh, Lord. It was a smaller church. Um, depending on the area I guess you're in, it, it ran about 400 people. Um, 
And so I always say that the devil lives alive on the stage, the music stage, because uh, in heaven, before the devil was cast out, according to the Bible, he was over music. And so that's where his heart is. And um, every platform I have ever seen has been full of drama and difficulty. Just, you know, it just felt like you were in an ocean with um, waves hitting you and taking you under. So it just, you just trying to keep your head above water. It was very difficult, very difficult for someone who had anxiety, who had never ministered, who had never wanted that, couldn't talk in front of people without mouth going dry, all these symptoms that would um, almost like PTSD symptoms. I, I, I say, like, I just want to just hide. And so, um, and the moment that I took that position, I would start thinking about what songs do I want to do for that weekend? And um, every song was a song, restoration songs. You know, there, in Christian, there's different songs. There's songs to God and songs about God. The true worship songs are the ones that you're singing to God. And so I would put on a song and within 30 seconds, I was up and um, dressed for the day. And so I used that tool right there in music until I could get to a place where I could open up my Bible and, um, and read. And it was a process. It was a long process of digging out. But the moment I said yes to that position, I don't think I got further away from him. Uh, it just took me a while to dig out of my hole. Do you think being offered that position changed or saved your life? It saved my life. It absolutely did. That was the, my lifeline. It, um, it's something about the way that God has set up the system of, um, of how he really ministers to the pastors and the ministers who minister to the people on the pew. Um, when you reach out and get beyond your circumstance and um, focus on helping someone else, God gives you that unending flow. He gives you the words. He gives you what to say and do and sing. And um, he healed me in that process. It's all about us not being selfish. It's all about us helping others and letting God give you um, what you need for that, for that particular task. And in return, he honors you with healing. And I got the most unbelievable healing on that stage over that uh, time span of a couple years. And what did you learn about the grieving process from your dad's passing? And as difficult as it is, how'd you become more resilient through that process? You know, what I learned was that sometimes we're too strong that we don't give it to God. And uh, there's things that, you know, pe people have this saying of God won't give you too much that you can bear. But things in life are too much. That was too much for me. Um, but the scripture says that, you know, our burden is heavy, but his yoke is light. We have to give it to him and he gives us the strength that we need. Um, we're not in this alone, right? And as I acted awful, I questioned him. I said things to him that I, I, I'm embarrassed about, but he never, the thing is about God's love, there's nothing he can do to cause us to love him any less or any more or love us any less or more than he already does. We can't buy his love with works, nor can we disappoint him so much that he stops loving us. And so I ran from him for so long. And the moment I stopped, I turned and he was there with open arms and it, it didn't matter what I had done or said. He was just glad that I had turned to him and given him the situation. So I have learned one thing that God takes our broken pieces and he makes something beautiful out of it. We are I'm different than I was before I was broken, but I'm a better version of myself. And I feel like that people see his spirit through me through the, all those broken cracks and that 
wasn't the way it used to be. I love that. That just makes the whole show for me. So thank you for those words. Oh, thank you. If you could go back and do something different to care for yourself and prevent all that anger you had, what would you do differently? My goodness, I would prevent the negative thoughts from, from planting. What I teach people now or what I try to teach them is uh, the, the Bible is so powerful. It's a living word. And so uh, a lot of these scriptures are in worship songs. That's why worship songs, um, but it uh, helps so much. But this is a battle. This is a battlefield of the mind. And if you can prevent that seed from planting, you can prevent that weed from growing. And so um, I would write scriptures on my on my arms or write 10 scriptures that I and put them in my pocket. I would Google scriptures that pertain to whatever emotion I was dealing with. Uh, most of the time it was fear. Fear was the emotion that I dealt with the most. I was so afraid of something else happening that I over controlled my world. I just about strangled my kids in the fact of controlling them to death. Um, but that wasn't the right way to handle it either, right? So I, I've learned to arm myself with scriptures. And the moment I felt something, I would, I would pull out the scripture and say, God has not given me the spirit of fear, but he's given me peace, love, and a sound mind. And that gave me such peace for, it may have only been for five seconds, but then I would pull out the scripture and start reading it again or turn on a worship song. The moment you feel something negative or a negative emotion, you have to have those things, those weapons is what I call them, right at your hands. Punch the song, pull out the verse, read the verse. I would write them on my on my arms. And it's amazing how um, you start to equip your mind to really quote these scriptures subconsciously. And uh, if you can do that every time, then um, you've won the battle for that day, for that moment, and that weed did not plant. And so the negativity of the mind doesn't take over. That's the biggest thing that helped me through this. And how should or can someone channel their grief after a tragedy like that? You know, it's so hard because everyone wants to help. Everyone has a helping hand in, um, they want to say something. They, they want to help make your circumstance better. But sometimes um, what people have to say is kind of foolish. It, um, he's in a better place. Well, I don't want to hear that the day after he died. Um, I want him here. And so I want to say something to the people who are trying to comfort. It's not about necessarily the words that you say. If you could just come up and give a hug and let and, and lend people your strength, that helps more than anything. Um, and I, I think I was a little too proud in, in my recovery. I, um, I thought I had it all under control. I didn't need medicine, I didn't think. I didn't need a doctor. I didn't need God. I, I knew I had everything under control. And that is such a lie. Uh, I would I would have reached out for help sooner if I would have really known how bad I really was. And your life took the positive turn through music. You released your yeah. first album, I Made It Through, in 2013, two days before your 37th birthday. How'd you land a recording contract, or recording contracts just a thing in the past now? Well, yes and no. Uh, in this instance, I didn't have a recording contract. I had uh, I had resigned my position at this church, uh, th that's a whole story in itself for as the church isn't in existence anymore. Um, and I, my recovery was tied to that. And so one night I laid on the floor and I bawled and I said, God, what am I supposed to do? I don't know if I want another music position because you know, the devil's on the platform. And so um, it's just drama, but I feel like you have more for me to do. And I just don't know what it is. 
And so I cried myself to sleep that night. And uh, that morning, that next morning, a guy that we had brought in from Nashville, who was a producer, um, texted me and said, have you ever thought about doing a CD? And I said, what made you think of me? Did you know I resigned? And he said, I had no idea. You've been on my heart since early this morning. And so I knew that that was a uh, answer to my prayer. And I said, we have to do a CD that is um, about making it through, the, through a trial from beginning to end. And he said, well, you know, we'll poll, poll all the writers. I know you don't have any experience in writing, and um, but you can relate to some of these songs. Let's just see what we get. And we got hundreds of songs that we had to weed through. And so my first album did not have any song that I had written, but I related to them in so so much of a way that if you put them, if you put them in order, um, in a certain order from beginning to end, it's the beginning of a trial to making it through a trial. So I wanted to equip people through the music and um, giving them songs to hang on to and kind of a, um, a path illuminated that, that they could walk that path to as well. So that was the beginning of my career, not knowing that every album would turn out to be another chapter of my recovery. Um, it was a training ground being the music minister at that church. And I didn't even realize it at the time, but it was a training ground for what I'm doing now. Was there an artist or were there artists that you wanted to collaborate with for that first album? Well, yeah, you know, there was so much music and so many people that had helped me through the songs that I hung on to in the midst of my depression. But I was I was a nobody in the industry. Nobody knew who I was. I was self um, paying for, for this album because I didn't in today's world, in today's market, you have to have an audience now. Uh, a, a big following um, on social media, music videos, things before a record agency or record contract would even come your way before you could even get their attention. So um, I was a nobody. And so I didn't feel the confidence that I could reach out and even ask somebody they wouldn't want to be a part of my project. So I didn't collaborate with anyone. And I wished I would have just kind of taken a chance and jumped out there and asked that. It probably would have been a better album. And how do artists go about that process? Do you just call or text another artist or is it done between agencies or how's that work? If you don't know an artist, it's done between usually manager to manager. Um, you you never want to go around and try to find a phone number or something to a um, a singer, current star, um, because that that kind of freaks people out. You, you become like a stalker, right? Like, don't call me. Uh, there's a professional way to do it. It's usually manager through manager. But if you meet these people, like I was on tour with a lot of people, a lot of Grammy winners, and became friends with them, still friends with them. And so you, you begin this relationship. So if you have a relationship with an artist, you can reach out and ask them and don't have to go through the proper channels, I guess, uh, which is always kind of neat. How do you approach the creative process when selecting recording new music? You know, they've come about in a different way. Um, I'm a very CEO type A personality, which is different than your most of your singers and artists. Most, most of the time they're on the other side of creativity with no organization. So I've actually done like org charts where I've had a common theme in the middle of the org charts um, of what I want the entire album to be tied to a certain theme and then have different topics coming out of that that are labeled ahead of time of, um, you know, I wanted a very well-rounded album. A lot of albums aren't made now. Uh, people do singles or they do uh, EPs, which have four or five songs. I'm old school. I like to do 10 
songs at least on a full album and release that album at one time. Um, so that's kind of how I approach it. Um, now it's just every time it comes about in a different way. And it's really cool to, to, to be in the trenches of, of how it happens. Sometimes it takes a full year to complete an album. And sometimes it takes 24 hours to complete an album. It just depends on who you have in the room and how dynamic the personalities, um, how, how you click with, you know. Are there particular Bible verses or themes that often find their way into your lyrics or music? Yeah, so uh, the verse that probably appears most in my lyrics is Deuteronomy 31.6. It was a scripture that got me through depression. Um, and there's many of them, but this particular one says, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, and so uh, I, rem I, I have said that uh, hundreds of thousands of times throughout my recovery. I still say it. Second uh, Timothy 1.7, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but he's given us peace, love, and a sound mind. Sound mind is something I have struggled with through depression um, because of fear. Uh, and then Isaiah 40, 31, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up as wings on eagles. And so um, I love the whole theme of soaring above uh, your circumstance um, with wings and not being fearful and uh, knowing that God will never leave you and he always walks before us. So those three appear a lot in my in my songs. And what's the timeline for recording an album? Is it done in days, weeks? You mentioned 24 hours. Is yeah, there an average timeline? So the first one was easy because we just pulled songs. So we were able to create that very quickly. Uh, the second one, I came in with an org chart. And um, that one's still, you know, probably six months to really write, produce, get it out the door. Uh, the Warrior Project, that was my third project. Um, we had changed uh, producers and had just met Ian Eskelin, who is now my business partner, my uh, co-songwriter, my producer of everything that the past three or four albums. Uh, we, me and my husband and Ian sat in a room and um, really I didn't have a, I had, for the first and second album, I had a lit up pathway in getting to those albums. And I felt like God had given me so much to put in them. And I didn't feel like I had anything for the third one. But we, in one day, wrote five songs. And the next day, we wrote four, which is very unheard of. In less than 36 hours, we had almost a full album. And um, my husband said at the end of that first day, he said, you know, you didn't feel like you had anything to write about. But God met us today. And every song is about strength and overcoming. And so... Um, that was, that was probably the most lightning fast. We've written songs within 10 minutes before, um, but then it's also taken us months sometimes. It just depends on the topic and how much research has to go into it and et cetera. And sometimes it just flows. We've been talking to Natasha Owens about the loss of a parent, grief, and her success in the music industry. And we'll be right back after a short break. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Up from the ashes, out of the grave, sweet taste of freedom, no longer your slave. Picture the heart-wrenching anguish a family endures when a child is abducted. Human trafficking is a worldwide crisis that plagues our society. 
Voices Against Trafficking, stands as a voice for those entrapped in the depths of despair. Broken Treasures, You Hold the Key, is a musical collection that showcases the dedication of artists and celebrities who were determined to protect the world's children. There is a way for you to make a difference right now. Visit VoicesAgainstTrafficking.com. The proceeds will go towards helping child victims. The power to liberate them rests in your hands. Cause I'm still alive. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. 9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com now back to this week's show and we are back i'm chris meek host of next steps forward and my guest today is natasha owens natasha burst on the christian music scene in 2016 and quickly found herself touring with christian's music's most iconic artists her sophomore album we will rise was named inspirational album of the year at the 2018 we love christian music awards with her fifth studio album, American Patriot, Natasha is taking a new direction and offering a bold, proud, powerful concept collection that bridges an unwavering love of country with the themes of faith and family that have always played a significant part in her artistry. Natasha, you and your husband, David, celebrated your 25th anniversary in May 2020. You're planning on a trip to Europe, but like so many other couples, your plans were appended by the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic. Now, I understand your husband's plan B didn't go as expected either. Would you like to share that story with us, please? Well, we had this amazing trip planned. We were going over to uh, Switzerland and taking a river cruise down down the Rhine through Germany, landing in Amsterdam, and then going over to to uh, visit the Downton Abbey Castle, who, which I was thrilled about, but my husband was could care less, right? But he he was going because of me. It was a two week trip, April fifth, uh, and of course COVID hit just weeks before that and completely canceled our dream trip. And, uh, you know, restaurants were closed only for takeout here in Texas. We we got strapped down very hard here, just like every other state. You would think Texas would be a little bit different, but I guess, you know, no one knew what it was and was scared and whatever. So he decides to rent a limo and he picked out one of my favorite movies from the 80s, 16 Candles, and he got this uh, big bucket of popcorn and big things of candy. And he said, we're going to go get something to eat and we're going to drive around the city and look at lights and, um, you know, watch, watch a movie and just try to do something different than sitting in our homes or, or doing takeout. Right. Um, 
but everything that could go wrong kind of went wrong. I had been on a diet leading up to that, you know, because I wanted to look skinny in Europe, go figure. I didn't want to be called a beefy American. Um, and so uh, I just wanted Waffle House. I love Waffle House. It's one of my favorite places. And it was closed. And who closes Waffle House, right? So it was at that moment I thought, you know what? We need to just, just start doing some footage and make a film because um, it was getting more ridiculous by, by the moment. So we couldn't find a, a restaurant that was open. When we did find one, it was terrible food. So we ended up going through Whataburger. If you know Whataburger, you know Texas loves Whataburger in a limo, which was really weird. And then, um, you know, people were shaming us from outside of the limo because we should be uh, social distancing. They thought we were having a party in there, right? And it was just the two of us. So uh, we didn't get what we wanted to eat and it was a brand new limo. And so they had not connected all the TV cords and stuff. And so we couldn't watch the movie. We had to end up watching it like uh, from us, um, the control panel that was the size of our iPhones. Um, and so we just sat on the floor and started laughing. Well, then I, I, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, I know it's a really small place, um, with just not many roads or interstates, but we got to, I'm being sarcastic. If anybody's ever been to Dallas, it's massive. <laughs> it's nothing um, but interstate. <laughs> yes. Nothing but interstates and high rises. And so, uh, we're noticing that we're turning up and down, up and down, up and down. And we're like, where is he going? So we looked out the window and he was in a parking lot of a Walmart. And I'm like, is there no other place to drive in Dallas other than getting me car sick and, the, and the going up and down Walmart? So it became kind of funny. It was not the uh, anniversary that we had hoped and planned and prepared for for a long time. But it began it, it became the anniversary that we will never forget. Well, David certainly gets an A for effort on that one. And uh, you have to put that in your book when you write your book, obviously. <laughs> yes, definitely. With pictures. You also view the pandemic from a more serious side, one that relates to personal freedoms. Put that aspect of the pandemic in the perspective for us, please. You know, it was the first time in my life and probably most everyone's life that our, uh, our freedoms were really infringed upon in America. I had never known you can't go to church, you can't. Um, you know, the, just the stickers on the floor. I don't ever want to see another sticker on the floor. Um, you were told what to say, when to say, where to walk, where to go. Um, and that's just not what America was based upon. And so I, I began to really concentrate during that time frame on um, our freedom. And then that led me to the military and our veterans, how um, I know in my life, I don't think I've ever, I've always been appreciative. I have military in my family. But what have I done to really say thank you for our freedom? It is the most expensive thing that we own. And I know I did not deserve it. Someone fought and gave their life for that. And so um, that led me more on a patriotic. I wanted to illuminate during the same time frame, of course, was the rise of all these organizations that were trying to, to tell uh, our young and our country that America was terrible, oppressive. We needed to break down what America was founded upon, which is Christianity. And um, I wanted to put, put, I wanted to illuminate how great this country is with all of its faults. It's still the greatest lighthouse on the hill that everyone gravitates to. And um, how awful would it be without an America? And so I wanted to do that at the same time, give back to our veterans and say thank you for um, for the sacrifice, not only of the veterans, but their families, what everyone in that family goes through when a soldier goes and comes back from war. And so um, 
that's what we did with the Patriotic Album, and I am very proud of it. I um, There's not many people who have done a full 10-song Patriotic Album other than Lee Greenwood, and they'll put out a song here and there, but no one wanted to do a full album, and I, I'm proud of that. I'm proud I'm one of the few. So you recorded your Patriotic Album. What happened next in terms of your career? Um. So I had crossed paths with politics in Nashville. I was asked to be on President Trump's faith initiative team for the last three years of his presidency. I was in the top 35 in contemporary Christian. And so everyone in the top 35 got an invite. When I showed up to the White House, excited about being a part of this group, um, maybe 5% showed up. Uh, and I started questioning, why would you not want to be here trying to help the government with faith initiative, right? With, with furthering Christianity. And that was when I was informed that Nashville is very progressive. The churches are very progressive. I didn't live in Nashville, so I, I didn't, I see the prideful nature of Nashville, but I, I wasn't really in it, right? Um, and I was shocked to know that, that these artists who get up there and, uh, talk about how great God is and how great God is of freedom was on a side um, that wasn't promoting freedom. And so I had um, I knew by doing a patriotic album that I was going to get some negativity out of Nashville. I just didn't realize I was going to get half of what I got. So I would think that contemporary Christian artists and producers would be especially conservative and pro-life. You know, and people think of Hollywood being liberal and Nashville being very conservative and patriotic. Obviously, that's not correct based on what you went through. What should consumers, aspiring Christian artists, draw from that? You know, it's not. In the country music world, we're seeing it a little bit with some of the younger Christian artists coming up, being uh, very progressive in their in their views, very radical, and anything but conservative. Now, the markets of contemporary Christian, the fan base, uh, as well as country, is very conservative, middle America uh, Christian um, fans. But um, I've been criticized in the industry by saying several times that Nashville is too woke for their audience. And it really is true. I mean, I didn't, I didn't expect that contemporary Christian market would be more progressive than the country market, who talks about beer and drinking and tequila making your clothes fall off and all these topics in the, in the country genre. How can someone get up and speak about God, but then join the, the party that's kind of the progressive ideals that's kind of against God? So... Um, I think the fans need to realize that, need to wake up and really need to know the artist um, of who they're following. Christian uh, artists do not get followed by the paparazzi. They don't get a lot of press. And so therefore, it's easy for them to get up on a stage and proclaim things that they're not. And so um, I would just ask the fan to be a little bit more educated in who they're following because they may not be following the right person. As I was preparing for a conversation, I came across various quotes about how tough the music business is. And no surprise, some of those quotes I don't believe I could share in Play Company. But I will quote Christina Aguilera, who said, it's a tough industry, and to work in it, you have to be as tough. You have to be persistent, and you have to stay true to yourself. Here's a two-part question, and I'll let you answer the first part before I go on. How tough have you found the music industry to be? Brutal. Absolutely brutal. I thought the contemporary Christian industry would be uh, more Christian, more about Christ, more about ministry. And I have found that since the uh, the streaming has real, the, the whole streaming topic has destroyed uh, the music industry just in the amount of money a songwriter gets. Um, and so 
all the ministry Christian oriented head of record labels, head of the industry, um, they kind of went out in Hollywood and New York, uh, secular markets kind of came in. And so that's when it all turned. And so it's, it's very cutthroat. It's very, um, secular. It's not, it doesn't have anything to about Christian Christianity or ministry. Uh, most of it is just the almighty dollar and how much they can make. And it, it's a shame because it ruined, it ruined a, a really good, um, thing that, that they had going on in Nashville. And the second part of the question, how do you stay true to yourself? It's hard. Uh, I have ideals of what I want to talk about, what I want to sing about, what I want to say. And at every turn, especially since the Patriotic album, I have someone, a part of my team or others, um, radio um, saying, shut your mouth, shut your mouth, quit talking, quit saying that. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're putting us in a bad light. And I'm like, but I'm just telling the truth. That's what we're supposed to do. And so, um, you know, I have a topic that I want to talk about, that I want to sing about, and they want to change my mind. And so you have to stand really firm, know who you are and the direction that you want to go into and don't waver off of that. And that that's hard sometimes when, you know, people in the industry who you look up to, who have knowledge of, uh, you know, more experience than I do are telling me I need to do something different. And I'm just saying, no, I'm going to stand up for what's right. I'm going to stand up for truth. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, and it doesn't matter who is with me or who has left me, which a lot have left me. Last year, you released a single, Trump One, which debuted at number two on the Billboard Country Digital Song Sales Chart. Were you surprised at the level of support for that song? I was. I, we had such tech suppression and I knew that we would, but I thought that we would not be able to really get it out to the masses to hear. Um, you have to let me back up a second before doing the Trump one song. I kind of tiptoed a little bit. I, I wanted to do go into this patriotic route that Lee Greenwood did. However, I wanted a home to come back to in Christian. And so we did a pro-life song on that album called Stand for Life. And uh, I did not realize that that is the song that that radio stations started boycotting me, telling telling promoters and uh, people who had hired me for events that I needed to be fired off because I'm too pro-life. I could offend someone. They were too scared to stand up. And therefore, I had too loud of a voice. And so um, I got really upset in, in a Christian industry that was was too scared to talk about life. And so I told my husband, my husband had said for three years or two and a half years, we need to do a Trump one song. And I'm like, no, that would absolutely blow up my career with a stick of dynamite where I can't go back. And so when, it, when I got to the stand for life song, I said, you know what? I don't want to be a part of that industry anymore that doesn't stand up. So I veered really hard and we did the Trump one song. And when it hit, it hit number one, it went platinum. Um, and a hundred million people right off the bat saw the video with tech suppression. And so those are very conservative numbers because as we were watching the, the video on YouTube, numbers were decreasing from a, from a million down to 500,000, down to, to, to five. And we had videos of that. So they call it glitches. I call it tech suppression. So uh, it got out there and it, it changed. It really gave a voice back to the people who had been censored for so long on a topic they couldn't talk about. You've talked about starting a music career later than most people. Is the same thing true when it comes to your political activism or were you interested in, in active in politics at a younger age? 
I wasn't. I didn't have any, any knowledge really of politics at all. Uh, I come from a very strict religion, um, Pentecostal, United Pentecostal. And so it was just kind of taught along me growing up. I mean, my dad always voted. He always taught me to vote. Before as being involved in politics, there should be a separation between politics and church. And that's true when it comes to the um, to the government regulating church. But that's such a lie to uh, Christians sitting on, on the pew. We should, we should be a center influence in politics because we haven't been a center influence. You see what has happened. And so um, I think the mamas are now rolling up their sleeves and, and jumping in. So I view politics very different than over the past couple of years than I did ever did growing up. You opened for Toby Keith at a concert to honor veterans. Your initial goal, like any entertainer, was to give them a smile and show them that you appreciate them but it turned to something much more based on the darkness that you went through after your dad's death and the common ground you found with the veterans who returned from combat. How did that happen and where did it lead you? Yeah, so on that stage, it was 53,000 vets. Mostly it was an honor for Vietnam vets and um, who did not get a lot of honor when they came back. And I just, I had all these emotions and all these words in my head and I didn't really know how it was gonna shape up. I just said, God, guide me and give me what to say because I want to let them know how appreciative I am of my freedom. And they played a part of that. And so I'm on the stage and it is something that day that happened to me that I'll never forget. It was life-changing. God started to pour into me. And I, even though my story is so different from those soldiers sitting out um, on that lawn that day, um, it was still a battlefield of the mind that I went through. It was the stages of grief. And that's exactly when a soldier comes back from war, from deployment, They've seen a whole lot. They, um, you know, everybody's happy to see them, but then they expect for them to wake up the next day and get back into life and go back to their job. And everything just kind of resumes. The pause button is is turned to play. And that doesn't always happen with our soldiers because it is a battlefield of the mind. The PTSD, uh, the depression, the, the friends that they lost in battle, all these things that they're dealing with. And they, yet they're trying to be strong and put on a brave face and a brave smile. And that's exactly how I felt. And so tremendous amount of empathy hit me. And I was able to, um, I, I decided to mix in into the patriotic, some of my um, songs from Stand to Warrior um, to I Made It Through to We Will Rise, all of my title track songs for my albums. And uh, I could see the, the tears coming down their faces. And I knew in that instance that God used me to help make a difference in their lives. And so I connected with them on a level I never thought. And I'm so thankful for that. In July of 2022, you celebrated the release of your new studio album, American Patriot, which was, as you mentioned, a new direction for you. Did you know the album and its pro-life and patriarch themes would rock the boat as much as it did? I had no idea. I mean, I really thought that um, most Christians love this country and they love God and they loved life. And so um, I know that the pro-life song didn't belong on a patriotic album, but it was an anthem. It was an anthem that I wanted to motivate the church um, to... Um, just to, I don't know, I, I don't like killing babies, right? And and the women today have, have believed the lie in America that it's just healthcare, that these are not babies until they're born. And now we're seeing the most unbelievable um, darkness where 25 states are allowing abortion up to 40 weeks, um, which uh, the baby can live on, on its own. And so um, I had no idea that that particular topic would uh, really blow up my career in contemporary Christian 
but I'm thankful for it because God has me on this path for a reason. He's illuminating this path and we're walking it. And I just want to stand up. Everyone's so afraid in the Christian world. No one wants to be hated. No one wants to be canceled in our culture. No one wants to be persecuted. And so they're too afraid. But that's not how Jesus acted. He always called out the sin. He was always vocal and he gave such love and restoration. And I want to be that light in the midst of the dark world. And I'm kind of glad that now my ministry is beyond the four walls of a church where people wouldn't choose maybe to go to church. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. I don't know what he's doing, but we're walking it. And do you expect to write more political or patriotic songs? I do. I have uh, turned into a new direction. We have a new album coming out this year, this spring. Um, and it's going to have the Trump one song on it. It's going to have um, songs that we have done as singles this past year. Um, from the Second Amendment song, our second protects our first. We would not have our First Amendment without our second. Um, and I, I wanted to um, just illuminate. I, I called. I did a song recently that called out the rhinos um, as one called out the Uniparty because that's what we're fighting. We're in a battle between good and evil right now. And I want to stand on a platform of truth and biblical truth. So I, um, I want to talk about topics on this next album and in this next year that aren't going to be necessarily popular, but they're biblically truth, like the two gender topic. There's only two genders at the end of the day. It's male or female. Uh, I want to hit that. I want to hit uh, the border wall. I want to hit um, and, and, or the lack of the border wall. We feel it here in Texas for sure when it's open. Um, and so I just, I want to hit those, those particular topics. And then I also want to put a few worship songs. Um, I've got one that we just recorded called blessed is the nation. And it just comes from the, the scripture in Psalms. It says blessed is the nation whose God is our Lord. And I would love to declare that on inauguration day at some point, um, that in America, the Lord is still our God. We're coming to the close of our show. And I always like to have our guests take us to the close with something that gives them hope or offer advice to our audience to help them become less stressed, more content, and more empowered. But this show is always something about first. Let's play for the first time on the show, your song Stand, and I'll turn the microphone back to you.
things are good and right if we're falling it's to our knees crying Jesus it's you we need so we can I could see you singing the song. <laughs> Natasha, we've got about a minute left. Any parting words for our audience? I just want to motivate people to just stand, be a light in the midst of the darkness. We have 47 million evangelicals that are not registered to vote and 65 million who do not vote in off presidential elections. If we would just stand up, do our part, not be afraid to speak the truth. Um, we live in a world that is not wanting the truth to come out. And so few and far between, there's only a few of us standing up. Stand with us so it's not so, it's not so hard. They, they, they put a target on our backs and uh, they can't do it if so many people. I've, one thing I found out with the Trump One song that if you stand up and push back, they retreat. And we need that. We need good people to stand up and um, make this world a better place. Natasha Owens, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm Chris Meek, right out of town. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.